for the Pacifica Radio Network and from the studios of KBOO in Portland, Oregon. This is Progressive Spirit. ProgressiveSpirit.net. I'm John Shuck. Progressive Spirit is now an hour long. We're celebrating five years of cutting-edge interviews with scholars, authors, and activists. Stations have the choice of airing the hour-long show or the edited half-hour program. You'll find the full version on podcast each week at ProgressiveSpirit.net. Grateful to stations across the country that have carried Progressive Spirit including WETS, Johnson City, Tennessee, WPBM, Asheville, North Carolina, WEHC, Emory, Virginia, KZAX, Bellingham, Washington, KCEI, Taos, New Mexico, KFZR, Fraser Park, California, KKFI, Kansas City, Missouri, KSOW, Cottage Grove, Oregon, KVOY, Norman, Oklahoma, KZGM, Kabul, Missouri, WLRI, Lancaster, Pennsylvania, WDRT, Viroqua, Wisconsin, and Progressive Spirit is produced at KBOO in Portland, Oregon. This week, I'm honored to welcome back my first guest ever on this show, Anthony Flacavento. The first transition, and it is the foundational one in my mind, is what I call the movement from consumptive dependence, which we all are caught up in to some degree or another, to productive resilience. So basically more self-reliant households and self-reliant communities that allow us to be more resilient. We will talk about Anthony Flacavento's new book, Building a Healthy Economy from the Bottom Up, Harnessing Real-World Experience for Transformative Change. Also on today's show, I speak with Deshna Ubeda, the director of ProgressiveChristianity.org, about the Embrace Festival coming up in Portland, May 4th, 5th, and 6th. You know, some people are coming because they're recovering from Christianity, mm-hmm. that they left because it was no longer relevant or it actually hurt them because they were excluded or demonized or villainized. Some people are coming because they are um, interested in theology from a historical perspective. Some people are coming because they are very um, interested in social justice movements or eco-ministry, or interfaith relations. Let's get to it. This is Progressive Spirit. Anthony Flacavento is a commercial organic farmer and the author of Healthy Food Systems, a toolkit for building value chains. He's published articles on sustainability and rural development in the Washington Post, the Huffington Post, and Solutions Journal. In 1995, he founded Appalachian Sustainable Development, and he now serves as the president of Scale Incorporated, a private consulting business that supports ecologically healthy economies. He's just published an important new book, Building a Healthy Economy from the Bottom Up, Harnessing Real-World Experience for Transformative Change. Welcome back, Anthony, to Progressive Spirit. Oh, I'm so glad to be back, John. The show is a ter- terrific addition for uh, our local station here in Tri-Cities in Southwest Virginia, but also all the other places that are carrying it. I'm, I'm proud of what you've done. Well, thank you. Uh, well, let's first of all talk about uh, the problem. Uh, your, your first chapter in your book, Building a Healthy Economy from the Bottom Up, is called What's Wrong with What We've Got? Uh, let's start there. Sure. So the um, premise of the book is essentially that there's a tremendous amount of uh, creative energy, of tangible activities that are happening around the the country, really around the world, but my book focuses around the country, in building what is variably called um, 
local economies, I call it bottom-up economies, sustainable economies. But before, I felt the need that before I got into lifting up those, some of those examples and putting them in context, I needed to first talk about the uh, overriding economic paradigm, the way we think about an economy. And so that first chapter does that. It's sort of a layperson's uh, economics critique of neoliberal, neoliberalism and basically of uh, global trickle-down economics. Um, and so I tackle what I call six myths um, about prosperity. So for instance, um, one of the myths is a rising tide lifts all boats. We've all said that. And uh, for many years in our country, I think you could say that a rising tide lifted a lot of our boats. It never lifted all of our boats. If you were African-American and you were shut out of the housing market because of discriminatory policies written into the Federal Home Administration Act, which is what happened, um, then it wasn't necessarily lifting your boat. But for, but for a few generations, the rising tide, meaning the, the growth and expansion of the economy, did lift an awful lot of boats. And that started to change rather dramatically and quite steadily in the mid to late 70s with shifts in tax policy, in trade policy, and in other things like even patent and economic development policy. So there's six of those myths in that first chapter, which probably most of us would say, another one is that growth is the essential uh, means to prosperity and that growth forever is possible um, you'll hear Democrats and Republicans alike embrace the idea of steady growth. We measure our economic well-being almost entirely in terms of the growth rate for the gross domestic product, the GDP. So, so I make an effort to explode some of those myths and really use both data and personal experience to see uh, that they may be at best half true and in some cases uh, really completely wrong. And the source of the problem, whether it's climate change or using up the, the resources of Earth and all of the destruction environmentally and whatnot, is, in a sense, uh, the way we handle money, isn't it? I mean, the way we organize our economies. The way we organize our economy, and, and another thing that I, we get into there is the question of what is really wealth. Um, one of my favorite author, authors, David Corton, um, talks about the concept of phantom wealth and that a very, very substantial part of our economy is in this phantom wealth in the sense that it's trades, it's speculations, it's these financial games that the big financial institutions play like derivatives and credit default swaps and all those things create money, usually for a very, very small part of the population. But that money is not connected to any real wealth, any tangible um things that would enable people to lead a good life. So it's not connected to healthy soils, to forests, to groundwater reserves, to the health of the oceans. It's not even connected to human physical infrastructure like roads and buildings and tunnels and other things that enable us to do things. So yeah, a lot of our economic way of thinking um, is organized around the notion that money equals wealth and that the more we have, the more prosperous we become. But, but it just ain't so. 
Um, here's another example. Even even putting aside for a moment the enormous ecological problems that have gone along with this indiscriminate growth kind of paradigm, is just the fact that even as we've grown, most folks have not benefited, uh, particularly over the last 40 years. I use this the cite the statistic that when Reagan was first inaugurated in 1980, 1981, uh, from that point until today, our economy collectively in the United States has grown by 400%, all right? 400% bigger, the total size of our gross domestic product today than in Reagan's first year. During that same period of time, our population has grown by 40%. So that's a tenfold difference. The economy, in other words, has grown 10 times more than the population. How is it even possible that the vast majority of us aren't substantially better off with an economy that is so much bigger relative to the people living in the country? But we're not. Most people are either stuck in the same place, marginally better off uh, financially or worse off. So clearly growth um, as a means to creating even just just human prosperity um, has failed us. Then of course we can get into the extraordinary ecological consequences of some of our economic thinking. What do you mean then of building the economy from the bottom up? You know, uh, you're aware that I ran for Congress four years ago and I was looking for a way at that time to think about and talk about, or talk about um, the, the sort of work that I was engaged with in Southwest Virginia, but the work that I knew to be going on in so many different parts of the country, uh, small and big towns, rural areas, all kinds of work. And, um, you know, sustainable development and other things, as I had called it, they just weren't exactly descriptive in my mind. So it occurred to me that um, the real issue was that trickle down wasn't trickling down. Uh, in fact, if anything, it was sucking up wealth out of small businesses to big businesses, community banks to the uh, giant financial institutions, ordinary people to a tiny elite. And so I thought at the time a, a very accurate and um, vivid contrast to trickle down was bottom up. And the truth is that it's an apt description because um, you've read through a little bit of the book. You know some of the uh, examples from around the country. They two of one all started from a small group of people in a particular community. Some of them have grown beyond that. Some of them have elicited and gained broader support. They've become regional initiatives, even national in a couple of cases. They've sometimes secured uh, support from the public sector at a larger level, but they all started at the ground level from the bottom up. The, the basic characteristics of these uh, this alternative emerging economy that I that I describe in the book is, is again, number one, that it, it starts at the grassroots, it starts in local communities. And, and second, because it starts in local communities, it's focused on real needs, real opportunities. So it, instead of simply creating a business or, or putting money into some sort of economic strategy for the sake of creating money flows or for the sake of creating jobs, it's actually creating jobs and economic activity specifically to address real needs. As I put it in the book, we start with the question, not just where will the jobs come from, but what is the work that needs to be done? And that's a, that's a question for us globally, but it's also very much a local question. So it's a little different question in each place. 
So these emerging economies um, address that question, and that means they're a little bit different from one place to the next. I'm speaking with Anthony Flacavento, author of Building a Healthy Economy from the Bottom Up, Harnessing Real-World Experience for Transformative Change. We continue the discussion about transitions that are necessary and happening. This is Progressive Spirit. you're just joining us on Progressive Spirit, I'm speaking with Anthony Flacavento, the author of Building a Healthy Economy from the Bottom Up, Harnessing Real-World Experience for Transformative Change. At, at one point you write, because we live in a time of such cynicism, such despair about our leaders and our world, I want to hook you and reel you into this book with hope, not hope premised upon what's theoretically possible, but hope based on what's already happening. So, you were my first guest on this radio program in January 2012, uh, five years ago. Take a look back at these five years. What, what have you seen happening in that time uh, on the ground on one level? And then, of course, it seems to have gotten worse at the global level. But I don't know. Tell me what you think. Yeah, no, you're exactly right. So over those five years, the nature of my own work has shifted somewhat. Um, I continue to work and do things in uh, Southwest Virginia and Abingdon. We still have our organic farm. I still work on a number of community efforts here. But because uh, a couple of years before uh, I was on your show, I had transitioned to um, starting Scale, this small for-profit consulting business, now the vast, vast majority of my work is in other places, from working with a, a food justice initiative in the South Bronx to working with farmers in uh, western Arkansas and northeast Kansas. And through that work and then through the research that went into the book, what I discovered over the last five years is that there's way more of this cool emerging bottom-up economy stuff happening, just extraordinary things. And again, the book is kind of built on a foundation of these examples. And so on the one hand, you have local people, oftentimes a mix of entrepreneurs, sometimes farmers, uh, occasionally there's academics or people from uh, public agencies involved, uh, cooperatives and others, fishermen. You have these mixes of people that are making extraordinary things happen. They're very real. They're not just wishful thinking. They're not just pilot projects, but they're actually gaining traction and building jobs, creating uh, business opportunities, developing more local capital and local wealth, all the different features of a bottom-up economy. They're very real. And so part of me looks at that. Part of me recognizes that my own work is working with those kinds of groups around the country. And so I get to work with fabulous people in all kinds of places. But simultaneous to all those or with all those things emerging and growing is the fact that we are essentially losing nearly all the fights at the level of the public debate and public policy. We have, for the most part, been either treading water or losing ground. And this is pre-Trump. We've been treading water and losing ground. Um, and so, again, returning to that first chapter, what's wrong with what we've got, 
part of what I want to say is, or what I'm trying to say, is it's not a, just a matter of returning to uh, a time of fairer distribution, a fairer tax system. Uh, that's part of it. It's not just a time of revitalizing small local businesses instead of spending a lot of money to recruit big outside corporations. That's part of it. But fundamentally, we need a new way of thinking about how we get along together and how we meet the real needs of our communities and of the planet. And so because we, we've just failed. We've just failed at that. Um, and I think a lot of it has to do with just how sophisticated, how relentless, uh, how systematic and how well funded the right has been just being very direct in my my beliefs. If you look at um, if you look at Jane Mayer's book, Dark Money, um, or the book Pity the Billionaire by Thomas Frank and others, you know, there's there's a lot of different people that have examined this question of all of the funding that has gone into not just get people elected, but change the way we think about the economy, about citizenship, about consumers, about public education, about the whole public sphere. People in my part of the political spectrum, progressives, I would call myself, have have really done a poor, poor job, not just of messaging to reach working people in rural communities, but actually of making working people in rural communities fundamental priorities. We've just been really bad at that. And so I think I think we've lost the public debate and, and so much ground in politics and public policy partly because the other side's been so good uh, and so well-funded for so long, but partly because of our own shortcomings. And certainly the most recent election um, is a, a strong demonstration of that as well. Anthony Flacavento, my guest, building a healthy economy from the bottom up, harnessing real-world experience for transformative change. And your book is written uh, in part to lift up um, all of the various examples of transition that you are seeing. What do you find as, as some of the most hopeful uh, aspects of this uh, of these new economies? Sure. So maybe I could um, uh, talk about a few of the transitions. I don't know that we have time for me to go through all six, but let me do two or three if we have the time for that. And in each case, let me give an example that I think um, both exemplifies it but helps explain it. And that's, by the way, the format of the book. After that, intro, that first chapter that that looks at what's wrong with what we're doing, uh, the next six chapters, each one is focused on one of these six transitions. Each one begins with five, six, seven real world experiences that demonstrate that transition and then moves on to a little bit of an analysis and a description of public policy, mostly federal and state, but some local public policy that would help build and accelerate that transition as well as policy that hinders it. So that's that's the flow of it. So let me let me hit a few of them. So the first transition, and it is the foundational one in my mind, is what I call the movement from consumptive dependence, which we all are caught up in to some degree or another, to productive resilience. So basically more self-reliant households and self-reliant communities that allow us to be more resilient. So a couple of quick examples of that in the book. One, very common, uh, it's almost in every state in the nation is community gardens. Uh, we've got quite a few of them here in Southwest Virginia and Appalachia. There's over 1,800 of them in the city of Detroit, as uh, many nonprofits and church groups and others have 
um, taken advantage of or utilized at least the abandoned uh, lots and turned them into places of productivity where people can meet at least some of their needs with little or no expenditure of resources. So community gardens would be one great example of this shift to productive resilience. Another is illustrated by a, a group that's a neighbor to um, to us in Southwest Virginia. They're in Eastern Kentucky called MACED, the Mountain Association for Community Economic Development. They do a lot of cool things, but one thing they developed was a way to help low-income and working people pay for drastically needed or, or seriously needed energy retrofits to their home. Here was the problem Mason was facing. People would be in trailers or drafty homes. They'd be spending 250, 300 bucks a month on you know huge electric bills, oil bills, never quite getting warm because their homes just were very poorly insulated. They didn't have the money to just grant to all of these folks. So they designed a system where a commercial contractor would come in, do the energy upgrades, double pane windows, insulation in the floor and ceilings, perhaps a new heating system. And then the families would pay back for the, that work by paying a portion of the savings on their electric bill. So instead of going into debt to a bank or instead of being dependent on a government grant, they actually upgraded and dramatically improved their homes, became much warmer and drier, reduced emissions going out into the environment and paid for it themselves out of the savings. Really a, a really smart way to create more uh, self-reliant and resilient um, households and communities. So those are two of several examples of that self-reliance. Um, the Another transition I, I'd love to hit on is the, the second one, which is uh, the idea of building local living economies. And by living economies, we mean economies that actually are good for people and good for the places where they are or the broader uh, ecosystem that they're part of. Uh, multiple examples in there encompassing um, solar gardens and solar energy, um, all kinds of things. But one that really stands out is this system of vertical ocean farming designed by a, a brilliant guy named Brendan Smith, who dropped out of high school to become a commercial fisherman, uh, fished for three decades on the east and west coast of the U.S. and Canada, saw the decline in the fisheries steadily happening. So he created this system where he integrates the production of four species of shellfish, mussels, clams, oysters, and scallops, with the raising of two species of seaweed in a vertical system that goes along the shoreline of the ocean, and he gets six products. He harvests the seaweed once a year, portion of it, dries it, turns it into a high-nutrient, high-powder um, uh, food stock, and then all of those high-value shellfish and the seaweed sequesters fantastic amounts of carbon from the atmosphere while also helping to clean up the ocean. So here's a guy producing six valuable products. He's now expanded this system to other fishermen who are doing it, um, and he's cleaning up the, uh, the local ecosystem, marine ecosystem, while pulling carbon out of the uh, atmosphere. These are the kinds of living economy solutions that are emerging uh, you know, in cities, in the country, and even uh, in on the shorelines of our oceans. Just really quite extraordinary. Now, how would you see this in terms of scale? Yeah, that's a great question. And that actually is the fourth, <laughs> the fourth um, uh, transition that I mm -hmm. talk about is bringing this 
bottom-up economy to scale. Uh, let me digress for a moment to, to make that point. So the third transition is about creating real wealth and real capital. And this, this partly answers the question of scale. I'll use my own experience with this. Years ago, almost 18 years ago, when we launched Appalachian Harvest, which was one of the first food hubs in the eastern half of the country, our challenge was that tobacco was going out. We needed farmers to have better and bigger markets. We needed farmers to be using more um, ecologically sustainable and organic production practices. And we had some of that figured out. But one of the missing pieces was how do you get small farmers who were spread out across the landscape to plug into larger, better markets like colleges, universities, supermarkets that are not necessarily in their backyard. And so part of what we figured out was, well, we need to be able to bring their organic produce and free range eggs and other stuff to a central place. And so we used an old tobacco barn that was the barn of one of our farmers. And for the first couple of years, we simply borrowed the barn, put a little minimum of equipment in it and uh, started actually packing, grading, and shipping the produce out of that. Over time, we bought the barn from him and then created uh, a better facility. And since then, Appalachian Harvest has moved on to another facility. But my point is something as ordinary and everyday as a barn, a tobacco barn in Appalachia, became actually a critical piece of infrastructure that enabled not one or two, but several dozen at, at, at the peak of when I was involved with it, about 70 farmers to have access to markets for healthy, locally raised farm products. We were capitalizing the community and in the process, enabling these farmers and a, and a sort of healthier food economy to begin to scale up. So that's one example. So sometimes it's not a matter so much of growing each individual enterprise or farm as it is capitalizing regions or communities so that the, the bang for the buck is much, much greater. Another example of how we scale up is, um, is Organic Valley, which is really quite extraordinary. You know, Organic Valley started with a handful of organic produce growers in Wisconsin, and they're now over a billion dollar a year business. Organic Valley is the exception to the rule. Most of the organic food or healthy food and lifestyle products that succeed get bought out by big international corporations and they fundamentally change. Organic Valley, because it's cooperatively owned by the farmers and workers, has maintained not only the worker ownership, but even though they're a national entity with their milk and dairy products and cheeses and everything else all over the country, they still work in regional pools. They still work with, with local and regional um, uh, dairy processors, uh, milk producers, and not milk farmers, of course, dairy farmers, but also cheese producers. So Organic Valley has created a national system with a national brand that is still fundamentally local and regional. And the third thing I'll say about scale is that certain networks of organizations like the New Economy Coalition or the Business Alliance for Local Living Economies, Bali, what they're trying to do is magnify the impact of this emerging, healthy, more just, more sustainable economy by sort of creating platforms for the sharing of best practices, which then you know accelerates the development of the local and regional things by putting public policy and public voice behind some of these emerging economies. So a lot of different folks are grappling with this question of scale. And it's absolutely critical precisely because, because clearly 
we have not reached a good enough scale, a substantial enough scale soon enough to have the kind of impact we should be having on the public debate and on public policy. So these scale questions are critical. Anthony Flacavento is my guest on Progressive Spirit, building a healthy economy from the bottom up, uh, harnessing real world experience for transformative change is his book. And you talked about the politics of it. And it's also a part of a transition is uh, the way we communicate uh, together, building a meaningful public debate. Talk a little bit about that transition. Yeah, you know, the uh, public debate, um, I, I guess we can say this on public radio, John, sucks. Yeah. It's, just, it's been shallow and sort of diverted to silliness for quite a long time. It's now, you know, in the most recent runaround of the presidential election, it's had these additional layers of just uh, no such thing as truth, the fake news and just the utter bombast and um, and attacks. So it's been bad for a while. It's now the the uh, the, the public debate's just gotten increasingly worse more quickly now. Part of that, again, is the technologies that we use to speak to one another. Uh, there's plenty of analyses sh- that show, and my, I think our own experience would, would reinforce the fact that it's simply easier to be simplistic and nasty to people when you are having a virtual experience of them. I wrote a piece um, a few weeks back that was called Facebook versus Face-to-Face, and it was published in HuffPost, and it's Really, again, I think that part of reclaiming a public debate is reclaiming public spaces, re-engaging with people who are different from us, whether it's at the farmer's market, whether it's in a town square, a town park, whatever it is. We have less and less of that, with the exception of farmer's markets, and we desperately need that. So that's one piece is simply interacting, to quote Ghostbusters, actual physical contact with other people that are not simply the same as us. But beyond that, what's emerging is an amazing assortment of community theater, of community media. Um, And it's whether you're talking about what Apple Shop has done in Whitesburg, Kentucky for over uh, nearly 50 years now, or whether we're talking about something like Swamp Gravy Theater in a tiny little rural town in southern Georgia, which has turned the stories of the people in the to- in the community, black and white folks, into both a kind of community healing and into an ongoing annual theater that they produce that are, that's uh, developed, written, and acted by the citizens themselves with a little help from a professional director. They have transformed their town essentially based on telling their own stories in a way that builds understanding. And there's been economic ripples out of that as well. So I think we need simultaneously this bottom-up emergence of of community theater, of uh, community-based media, and of the regeneration of public civic space, along with a real fight to decentralize the media. Right now, six companies own 90% of our media, and that's a huge part of our problem. So, So just as with every one of these other transitions, what I argue for is We've got to build it at the bottom and we've got to fight the bad stuff at the top so that the top, our policy, our rules, our investment decisions reinforce the good stuff emerging at the bottom instead of undermining it and handicapping it, which is primarily what happens now. And uh, thank you for that nice plug for community-based radio. Uh, that movement is growing. It's an opportunity for local programming, local people to talk about 
real news that matters to them about real things. Building in a Healthy Economy from the Bottom Up uh, is his book, Harnessing Real-World Experience for Transformative Change. I'm speaking with Anthony Flacavento from uh, Southwest Virginia. Uh, this book, tell me a little bit about who it's uh, written for. What do you hope to get from it? Yeah, so the book is written for two audiences, basically. First one is the practitioners like me, the entrepreneurs, the community activists, the social entrepreneurs around the country, to try to say to them, hey, we need to really lift up the work that we're all involved with. We need more, more, more folks to know about it. And we need to find the public policy elements that would support our work and, and, and work for better public policy. So that's part of the audience. The biggest audience I'm hoping is what in the book I refer to as just hopeful citizens. So people across the political spectrum, but who don't really like the way things are or going, and but they also aren't quite sure what the problem is, or maybe they're not quite sure how the economy works or exactly what the relationship between the economy and the environment is. The book is fundamentally for those folks to help them both understand a little better how things do work, but most of all, so people will feel equipped to take action in their own lives, their own households, their own communities, and in the larger public sphere of, of politics and policy. Thank you so much for your work and for being with me today. Thank you, John. You're listening to Progressive Spirit, spirituality and social justice. Up next, Deshna Ubeda discusses why millennials are not in church, but are building communities of conscience. I think that people are craving a place to go where um, they can be seen, where they can be accepted, where they can get involved in meaningful and meaningful work around social justice, around social activism, around helping the needy, um, and where they have a sense of, of family and um, something deeper than just their own selves. We discussed the Embrace Festival coming up May 4th, 5th, and 6th in Portland. Stay with us. Deshna Ubeda is the director of ProgressiveChristianity.org. She's taking on an ambitious project and hosting a festival in Portland in May, May 4th through 6th. It's called the Embrace Festival. Welcome, Deshna, to Progressive Spirit. Thank you. I'm very happy to be here. What we're going to talk about today is the Embrace Festival, Sacred Community, Social Transformation, and Art. Tell me a little bit about it. Yes. Um, well, I'm, I'm really excited to be able to share this event with you. Um, I believe that it's innovative and unique, and there isn't much else out there like this. Um, something similar might be the Wild Goose Festival, which is an outdoor camping right, and festival. Right, it takes place in Appalachia, yes, North but Carolina. This, yeah, um, but this is an in-city festival and um, with a focus on sacred community and social transformation. And we really wanted to provide people with an opportunity to experience sacred community in a new way. Um, as you know, probably, um, churches provided a certain amount of community and support networks for 
humans, you know, for thousands of years now. Mm -hmm. And as we've seen a decline in church attendance, um, many people, you know, are confident to say that church is dying. Um, we're also experiencing a vacuum of community in our neighborhoods, in our you know local towns. And I, I think that people are craving a place to go where um, they can be seen, where they can be accepted, where they can get involved in meaningful and meaningful work around social justice, around social activism, around helping the needy, um, and where they have a sense of, of family and um, something deeper than just their own selves. So um, while uh, church is still relevant to very many people, I don't believe it's relevant to the younger generations anymore. And what I've experienced is um, that younger generations are already um, and successfully co-creating new forms of sacred community. And you see a lot of that in these transformational festivals like Burning Man, like Beloved, um, like Envision, uh, Lucidity. And what happens is a culture is created there. People bring their gifts, people bring their unique offerings, and they end up co-creating this event, especially an event like Burning Man, where it's completely put on by the people. You know, Burning Man brings 70,000 people a year out into the desert, you know, to create this incredible city of art and music and learning and connecting. And um, those people go out into the world and affect, affect their culture there. So... Embrace Festival, um, I wanted to be able to share that experience with a different demographic, not just the younger people that are already involved in those festivals and those communities, but um, also, um, you know, middle generations and older generations. One thing that I have noticed that's lacking in a lot of transformational festivals are the older generations and in community in general. I have a great thriving community here and I lack, it lacks some elders. And so I'm, I'm really hoping that we are bridging the gap um, age wise, as well as between older forms of, of community and newer forms of community. I'm speaking with uh, Deshna Ubeda, who is organizing the Embrace Festival, which is coming up in Portland. And the dates of that are May 4th, 5th, and 6th? Yes, exactly. Embracefestival.com. Mm -hmm. And on there, uh, some incredible presenters, as well as musicians and artists. I, I saw Matthew Fox as, mm -hmm. as one of the headliners, I suppose. Yep, he this, is. This uh, certainly is up his alley. It is, yes. Matthew Fox is an incredible theologian and uh, pastor and author. He's written 28 novel, you know, books um, over the years. He has been at the front of this movement of um, progressing uh, Christian theology. Big on creation spirituality, his book that uh, got him in wonderful trouble with the Vatican, Original Blessing. Yes. Uh, so he's been uh, doing this for a long time. But, he, but it, this is more than... Christian. This is uh, a wide variety of spirituality. It probably has a home in Christianity, but it has a home in many spiritual traditions, including secular traditions, right? Uh, Greta Vosper is uh, one of the guests, too. Uh, she's um, a friend from Canada uh, who has become out as the atheist minister. 
Yes, exactly. I'm really glad you brought that up because that's a really important aspect of the event for people to understand, that while there are some roots in progressive Christian um, theology and that movement, it's very expansive. The umbrella is wide. And we have a speaker, for example, who is a um, Reiki master and a shaman who's coming to speak about um, shamanism. And we have evolutionary spiritual speakers. Um, we have secular speakers. We have um, a man coming to speak on health equity, um, somebody speaking on conscious aging, um, a incredible psychologist friend of mine, Carrie Conti, who is speaking on um, basically raising a whole courageous human beings, so parenting, um, permaculture, nonviolent communication, um, sacred connecting, like Solsara, that's a local movement here. Um, so we're having someone come to speak about that. So yes, there is um, a wide variety of topics that fall under that umbrella of sacred community and social transformation. But we also wanted to address Christ consciousness and Buddha nature. And what does that mean to um, discover that within ourselves? And what is, how does that affect our lives? How does that affect our action in this world? So uh, talk about some of the, the Portland speakers. Are, uh, do we have, some, we, have, we have people from, from Portland themselves, some alternative uh, spiritual community leaders and, and whatnot? Yes, we do. Um, well, you'll be there. Well, yeah, okay. <laughs> I, I didn't mean to go there, but necessarily. But yes, but, who, but, but beyond that, we've got mm-hmm. some fascinating well, people. Well, we're very excited that you're <laughs> going to be there with us. And you're going to be um, on the panel for Sacred Community and Social Transformation. So our Thursday event, we're going to have a panel of six individuals. And we'll basically be introducing the theme of the, conf- or the uh, gathering then and uh, allowing people to do a question and answer and discussion amongst people. We have Jim Burklow coming. He's the Associate Dean of the Religious Life at the University of Southern California. And he's done a a lot of work with uh, Progressive Christians Uniting. He's going to be talking about Christian mindfulness. Um, As I mentioned, a friend of mine, Carrie Conti, she's a psychologist, peri and postnatal psychologist, She's going to be talking about the whole courageous human and raising children. Um, We have some amazing local people coming as well. Um, We have a group of people coming from Revive Commons and Tabor Space, which is a local organization here, a nonprofit organization, um, who have a model of going into church buildings and reviving those spaces so that the churches can continue to exist in them. And bringing in the neighborhood by bringing in classes and events and such. Um, Another woman named Michelle Hawk, she's um, a shaman and a a Reiki master. She's going to be talking about shamanism, universal shamanism. Of course, we have Matthew Fox, who I'm sure will just delight us with his um, passion and his creativity and his intelligence and his awareness. Um, Rabbi Brian Mayer is a local Portlander as well. Um, he's a rabbi and he's going to be talking about nourishing our connection, um, our spiritual inner being. We have, uh, Fred Plummer from progressivechristianity.org. He's going to be speaking with us. John Robinson is coming to talk about conscious aging. We have a woman coming from Australia, Alexandra Sangster, who, um, is a pastor there as well and who has done a ton of social justice work. So she's going to be sharing stories from, literally, you know, work that she's done in the streets there. 
um, you know, three-day-long protests in front of the courthouse and um, work with refugees and such. Um, Bruce Sangwin is coming from Canada, and he he's an incredible author as well. He's done a lot of work around evolutionary Christianity, and he's moved into um, counseling um, and therapy work using uh, psychedelics. So he's going to be talking about ayahuasca and different um, tools and such. And I think it's important to note that the the way that our presenters are going to work is a little bit different than, for example, a conference or yeah, a different kind of gathering. Yeah, talk about that. How is it set yeah. up? Yeah. Um, so we are doing a short, um, you know, to use the term, you know, quote unquote, TED Talk-like presentations. Mm-hmm. So these are going to be 25-minute long presentations um, three at a time. And we do have four um, featured presentations, which will be a little little bit longer. They'll be 45 minutes long. But most of them will be these short 25-minute presentations. And they are ideas and stories that these presenters are passionate about. So these aren't lectures. Um, these aren't promoting their own, you know, their recent book. Um, these are the, the, the core nuggets of what these um, people who are doing incredible work in this world are currently really excited and passionate about and feel can positively affect the world. Um, So they'll be uh, very dynamic, fast-paced, and we will have a variety of media. Um, Some will use screens, some will be interactive, some will have theatrical elements to it. So it'll be really fun, and we'll break in the afternoon for workshops, but mostly, most of the event is going to be a, a single stage, main stage event. And where will this be? Uh, the The majority of the event will be at the incredible Portland Art Museum. Very excited that we that's were able... That's the main stage? That's the main stage. Um, Friday night, we are doing a celebratory event where we are bringing in musicians, live performers, live painters. We'll have a tea lounge. We'll have a full bar. We will have um, a dance floor and um, an area for people to purchase local artisan crafts and such. And um, we have incredible musicians talk coming about, for Yeah, that. let's talk yeah. about some of the musicians that you have coming. So we have two nights of music. Friday night is our celebratory event. Saturday night is our closing ceremony. Friday night is going to be in the Grand Ballroom at the Portland Art Museum. And that particular evening can be purchased separately. So that's important for people to know that if they can't make the full event, they can go to the website and purchase the ticket for that separately. And that night we'll have a band called Yaima and we'll have a band called Indubious, both uh, Northwest locals. And we'll also have a local uh, favorite DJ called Dar Cernoff. Um, these musicians are going to make us dance. They're um, very inspiring. Their lyrics are always moving and encouraging and positive. And so um, this is going to be a moving kind of thing. It isn't just sitting and watching. Yes, it's, there's uh, audience participation. We might say. Yeah, if wanted, there's going to be you know spaces for people to uh, sit and enjoy as well, so that we can provide okay. the whole the whole spectrum of experiencing it. Um, and this was similar to what Matthew Fox has called his cosmic mass. Right. So, you know, he a long time ago uh, came across the electronic music scene and realized that it was the younger generation's new form of worship and healing and transforming. And so that's what's happening in transformational festivals is that, you know, less and less people are needing, you know, 
uh, you know, drugs or, or alcohol. And more and more, they're getting into their own spirit bodies through movement, through music, through connection with others. This sounds fantastic. This is a lot of work. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you must be working 36 hours a day uh, to organize It feels organize like that this. sometimes. <laughs> But how, how do you have an idea of how many people might participate in this? Yeah, um, you know we are um, we're maxed out. Our capacity is about just over seven hundred. So of course we're aiming for for that amount. Okay. Um, we um, are offering scholarships. We're offering volunteer positions. We're offering group discounts. But I think that it has um, such a unique offering um, that. Um, if the word gets out, people will, will find it valuable to them and it'll be very healing. You know, some people are coming because they're recovering from Christianity mm -hmm. that they left because it was no longer relevant or it actually hurt them because they were excluded or demonized or villainized. Some people are coming because they are um, interested in theology from a historical perspective some people are coming because they are very um, interested in social justice movements or eco-ministry or interfaith relations. So there's, you know, there's a, there's a wide offering here, and I think that people can find um, what they're looking for in their life. I think it's, it's very possible that they can find a piece of that here that they can take home with them. Deshna Ubeda has been my guest talking about in the Embrace Festival, which is coming up in Portland, May 4th through 6th. And that website uh, again? EmbraceFestival.com. EmbraceFestival.com. And, and you uh, can find us on Facebook, Embrace Festival there. Sounds great. I hope, it, I hope you have a huge success. I think this is an exciting thing. Thank you, John. It's been a pleasure to be here. You've been listening to Progressive Spirit, now an hour long. Technically, 54 minutes to accommodate top-of-the-hour news. Go to ProgressiveSpirit.net for links to podcasts. Find us on Twitter and Facebook. You can catch Progressive Spirit each week on iTunes, Stitcher, PRX, Podomatic, SoundCloud, and wherever you hear podcasts. From KBOO in Portland, I'm John Schuck. Be well.